This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. I'm Billy Hurley with NASA Tech Briefs, and this is another monthly Who's Who at NASA podcast. Today I'm speaking with Lynn Chambers, project scientist on NASA's Innovations in Global Climate Change Education Project. Lynn, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. Lynn, uh, can we start off? What is the Innovations in Global Climate Change Education Project? Okay. Um, This is a project that NASA initiated um, in 2008, actually. um, It was congressionally directed at that time. Um, So for three years, we've been operating as a congressionally mandated project in just global climate change education. This year, we became the Innovations in Global Climate Change Education as part of the NASA budget under the Minority University Research an education program, which is MIRAP. And so um, overall, we're trying to achieve two major things with this project, which is climate literacy in the broad public, including students, and uh, having people prepared for employment in fields that relate to climate and climate change. And so with this year being in the new um, MIRAP area. We're working primarily with minority institutions to do that. And what is your specific role as as a project scientist? Um, I provide sort of the direction. Um, This is initially was congressionally directed as a um, competitive opportunity. So basically all the funding that we had was uh, put out in the form of grants or cooperative agreements to um, universities, nonprofit organizations, school districts, et cetera. Um, and so I provide sort of the direction um, each year, the focus for that um, solicitation, and then um, try to ensure in the review process that we are making effective use of NASA content in the projects. I mean, that's obviously the whole point for NASA funding is to get some of the NASA information out there through these projects. Just curious, too, I saw that you studied to be an engineer and then became a NASA scientist. Can you talk a bit about how that shift came about? Yeah, long story. Um, I actually spent about uh, 10 years working in um, space spacecraft analysis. Um, my, my dissertation is in the area of non-equilibrium uh, radiative transfer for um, vehicles entering the atmosphere of the Earth or Mars. And a few years after I finished that, um, was in the mid-90s when there were no missions going on at all, and there was a little local advertisement in the NASA Langley um, internal newsletter that one of the Earth science missions was looking for people, and their primary area was uh, radiative transfer. Um, so I came over looking to do sort of a one-year, you know, broadening my horizons kind of a detail, and I had never gone back. Hmm. Now, when we're talking about climate literacy, what are some of the common climate change misconceptions? Okay. There are lots of misconceptions, um, and I kind of looked at some 
list this morning, but I would say the one that I would emphasize and probably causes the most problem is that people don't understand that weather and climate are not the same thing. And mm-hmm. we, we all live in weather and we all understand weather and, and most of us have learned some things about weather in school. Um, most of us have learned little or nothing about climate in school and so we tend to take that personal experience we have of weather and apply it to climate and that causes lots of um, misconceptions and you know, wrong conclusions and things like that. So, so what are you emphasizing? Where are these gaps and what do you need to kind of keep emphasizing over and over again as far as, you know, the, uh, what climate is? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would say, um, that one of the, one of the big issues recently is that in general, science has not been a high priority for education. And there's been all the emphasis on reading and math and the standardized testing for reading and math. And so science education as a whole is kind of getting a short shrift, I guess I would say, um, which means that when you're trying to make a scientific argument, a lot of people really don't have the tools they need to understand it. Um, so that's one issue. Um, and then the other um, kind of picture that I recently heard, um, and this is a, from Bob O'Connor at the NSF who gave a talk at a workshop I attended a few weeks ago, um, it's kind of a, a, a mental model of our understanding of climate and climate change. And what he described that really resonated with me is that, you know, our, our investigation and understanding of climate change should be thought of as a jigsaw puzzle where different scientists in different fields are turning over various pieces and, and putting that picture together, um, as opposed to, I think, the mental model that a lot of people have of science as a house of cards, and if you find one mistake, if you pull out one card, the whole thing falls down. Um, so I think, you know, kind of getting across how science works and the different pieces that go into our understanding is, is a key thing. And what do you think needs to be done the most to, to improve climate science education? And what are the effective ways that you've seen of teaching the public? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question, and I don't know that I have any kind of a definitive answer, but um, I think one thing is is just to have climate science education because, as I mentioned, a lot of people learn about the weather, you know, in elementary school or something, and that that's basically it, and they never even get exposed to the concept of climate. Um, so we have currently 57 projects with another 14 about to start, that are trying different approaches to this. And um, I would say that, you know, we haven't come to any conclusions, really none of our projects are done. But some of the things that we've seen so far that seem to work are um, projects that really leverage local context and local connections. So, you know, going back, um, looking at the history of your own area, um, we've had some projects that interview I'll call them elders, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, people that have been in that area for 20, 30 years or more and can kind of give their perspective of what 
may have changed. Um, so, you know, that's one approach. Um, there's probably lots of other approaches, and, and hopefully in the next couple of years we'll know a little bit more about good ones. Why is climate science uh, in particular such a challenging subject to teach, you think? Well, I think um, it's one of the most multidisciplinary science areas there is. Um, basically, any person who's studying any aspect of the Earth, whether it's the atmosphere, the oceans, um, vegetation, agriculture, um, ice sheets, all of it has a piece of the puzzle. And so, you know, if you take any particular climate scientist, they most likely will know a, a lot about their particular aspect, but they won't know much or even anything about some of the other areas. And so trying to ask the public or a student to have some understanding across that whole spectrum and finding a teacher who can teach it um, is a pretty big challenge. Sure. And what has the sort of response from teachers been? Um, we've had some pretty positive response. Um, I haven't put things together, and actually we have a postdoc starting a week from Monday whose job is going to be to kind of try to synthesize across our 57 projects some of the results. But, you know, just looking at individual reports from some of our individual PIs, um, I think that the teachers really appreciate having the time to, you know, kind of look across um, the different areas of climate science and to um, be treated as colleagues um, in a lot of cases by the scientists in, in these projects um, as experts in their own right and, you know, learning the content so that they can teach better. So there's probably, there's probably other examples, but that's just one that comes to mind. How important are partnerships? Who do you need to partner with to successfully carry out education initiatives? Well, I would say um, for this particular issue, we need to partner with anybody and everybody that we can. Mm -hmm. um, more than we have, more than we probably can even do. But um, as I mentioned, we've got projects with universities. Um, We've got projects with nonprofits. We've got projects with school systems. Um, we have projects with community colleges. And so we're really trying to get out in as many ways as we can um, and find the people that have the ideas that will work. I don't necessarily have a, a sense of this, but I'd be interested to know if there are any kinds of congressional um, educational mandates that exist that affect how you do your job. Is that the case? Um, we started as a congressional mandate. So in 2008 was the first year that this was put into the budget. Um, so, you know, it would not have happened without that. Um, but that being said, things have changed up there since, and so there's not nearly as much support as there was. Um, so, you know, right now I don't know of any mandates that really are affecting us, but I think we're kind of all watching um, to see if something will come back. To dig into climate science a bit here, what have been the biggest factors uh, contributing to climate change? Well, the biggest
factor is greenhouse gas emissions, um, and that's mostly CO2 um, and also methane. Um, and that's from burning fossil fuels um, in cars, in factories, in trucks, in ships, you name it. Um, sort of about 20 to 25% of the issue comes from de deforestation and land use change, where we're taking carbon that has been sitting in trees for hundreds of years and burning it and letting it back into the atmosphere. So those are the two biggest factors. And has NASA research produced uh, evidence of, of global warming? Um, we produced one piece of the puzzle, as I mentioned, that puzzle image earlier, or probably several pieces of the puzzle. Um, one thing that NASA does that really isn't possible otherwise is to give you a global picture of the ice cover of the Earth. Um, so NASA has several satellites that orbit over the poles and the entire planet multiple times a day, and you know before that happened, there was really no way to track ice cover um, on a global basis. So that's, that's the key contribution. Um, we also have the series instruments that I actually started working on that are measuring the energy flows um, in and out of the planet. And that um, information is, is just on the cusp of really being able to give us, I think, climate information. You really have to make those measurements for 15 plus years um, before you can really pull the information for climate change out of the variations of weather. Um, so those are two examples. I'm sure if you talk to anybody else at NASA, they would give you several other examples. Sure. And what is your best way uh, of addressing climate change skeptics? I wish I knew. Um, this is an ongoing issue, and it's, I think, something that requires a lot of different approaches because there are different types of climate skeptics. Um, and one of the things that we have been sort of starting to address is, you know, as, as a scientist, our tendency is to just rely on the data and information, and we put it out there and Obviously, the conclusion should be clear um, to anyone, but that's not how it works. And so um, we're adding in some of the other dimensions. So we had a, um, a joint principal investigators meeting this spring with some awardees from NOAA and NSF. Um, and, and NSF in particular is beginning to look at some of the social science aspects of this. And, you know, what are the other dimensions of communication that scientists don't typically use um, having to do with emotions and values and um, humor and a whole range of other things? Sure. I mean, if, if we had the answer to that, I think, in my personal opinion, there wouldn't be climate change skeptics because the evidence is pretty strong. Um, but clearly we don't have the answer to that because there are still plenty of them. Mm -hmm. So are, are political challenges an obstacle? Yeah. I mean, it hasn't affected us yet in terms of the project, but it is definitely an obstacle in terms of getting the information out. Um, 
and unfortunately in the U.S. more so than in any other country, this issue has really become a partisan issue, um, and it's happened in the last 10 and 15 years. Um, before that, it really wasn't a partisan issue, and, you know, there's just some things that happened in the U.S. political system for whatever reason that, that brought us to this point, so it makes things extra difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm interested too in sort of your day-to-day work. Can you kind of take us through um, what your your jobs are and what your you know your uh, your goals are on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of two flavors of things. One is um, since this is a, a competitive opportunity, um, we've been putting out a solicitation actually on a on a shorter than annual basis um, in the last few years because we're trying to get that caught up to the um, fiscal year cycle that we should be on. So that's a major issue, um, you know, writing the solicitation, releasing the solicitation, hearing proposals, um, making awards. And then the other um, big piece of the job is to um, basically try to create a community. So what we really didn't want to do was have, um, within the first year, we made 22 awards, and we didn't want to have 22 islands out there working independently from each other. So we spend a lot of time um, making connections with the projects and across the projects and making sure that all of our awardees are at least aware of what each other is doing um, and, in many cases, can actually leverage what each other is doing. Um, so on, on an ongoing basis, that's sort of our focus. And so that's why we have the annual PI meeting where we get people together in person. Uh, we also have a monthly webinar telecon where we have a couple of projects present each month. Um, and then you know, lots and lots of emails. Sure. What would you say is the most satisfying part uh, of your of your job? Hmm. Well, I guess in the short term, it would be um, making people happy because they won their award uh, for their proposal. And actually, today is the day that we just announced, are announcing this year's awards. So uh, that's fresh on my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess in the longer term, um, the idea that we are having some impact and helping people understand this really important issue is probably what keeps us going. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of thing you can, or is there any uh, information you can tell us about the most recent uh, awards at this point? Um, so we're awarding 14 new awards um, today, and they're in 10 different states. Um, they're mostly university. Um, there's a couple, I think, three or four nonprofit organizations. Uh, there's one community college that's being awarded. Um, all of them are minority-serving institutions, so we have some uh, historically black colleges and universities and some Hispanic-serving institutions and then nonprofits that serve those communities. And they're going to be doing a range of projects, um, working at the K-12 level, working with teachers, and working with undergraduate students. Mm-hmm. And very excited. 
excited to have them in with the rest of the group and get them connected and get them going. Well, thanks, Lynn. We at NASA Tech Briefs want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. 